Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In this podcast, we're going to talk frankly but sensitively about issues some people might find disturbing, including rape and suicide. If you or someone you know is suicidal, in the U.S., dial 988. Check out this podcast notes page for information on LGBT plus mental health resources in your community. This is Shattering the System. I'm Sonari Glinton. By now, you're likely familiar with the name Ed Buck. Ed Buck was indicted on two counts of distribution of methamphetamine resulting in death. He was accused of four counts of distribution of methamphetamine, one count of maintaining a drug-involved premises, and two counts of enticement to travel in interstate commerce for prostitution. The two counts of distribution resulting in death were for the deaths of Jamel Moore and Timothy Dean. We believed these victims. We believed that what they said happened to them actually happened to them. And we wanted to keep Buck from doing this to anybody else. Lindsay Bailey is an assistant U.S. attorney. She was the lead attorney in the case against Ed Buck. She lays out each of the charges. First, there were the distribution charges that didn't result in death. Those were for the four victims who testified and survived. We had four victims here who, because they lived and survived, their cases were just charged as distribution cases. There's no mandatory minimum. The statutory maximum is, I think in that case, 20 years. And this is to distribute for like drugs? A, yes. Then there were two counts of enticing someone to travel across state borders for prostitution. That was because of the evidence that Buck had offered to and paid for Jamel 
to travel from Texas to California for sex. And then there was one count of maintaining a drug-involved premises. Well, that seems straightforward. Buck was accused of using his home as a drug house. Bailey says none of those charges had mandatory maximums, though. It always drives me crazy when they say, well, they're looking at a maximum sentence of this. Usually when you're charged with that crime, it's very rare that anyone is sentenced anywhere near the maximum. So for those cases, you're looking at, you know, a year, five years, maybe if you're lucky, 10 years for that type of of distribution. For the death resulting cases. Now, this is the important part. The real charges against Ed Buck, the ones that the government thought would be a deterrent, were the distribution resulting in death. That Ed Buck gave Jamel and Timothy the drugs that killed them. Which is, I distributed drugs to you and you died, or I distributed them to someone and someone died, whether it's methamphetamine in, in Buck's case, or, you know, more often we're seeing this with fentanyl cases. It's an automatic 20-year mandatory minimum, and then the guidelines range is much higher. So you're looking at a minimum of 20 years, but it could go up anywhere to life imprisonment. He is in a class all in his own. And I think the reason that our office brought charges against Mr. Buck is we saw an individual who was essentially preying on vulnerable communities with impunity. He seemed to have no remorse for what he was doing. He was putting people's lives in danger on a regular basis. And not just people, but specifically vulnerable communities. Really, what he was doing was pretty horrific. And so there was a strong desire to bring charges specifically, I think, against Mr. Buck because of the number of victims he had, because he was doing this with impunity, because multiple people had died as a result of his actions. Um, and so for Mr. Buck, I think that was the main reason that that we were looking to bring charges against him as opposed to, you know, your average drug dealer on the street. After nine days of hearing testimony that even a judge found disturbing. The trial recessed for the jury to figure out a verdict. Jonathan Unger is one of the producers of this podcast. Jonathan and I were there for the reading of the verdict in the case of the United States versus Ed Buck. That happened at 9.30 the morning of. They were back with their verdict by 1.50 p.m. that same afternoon. And I think that shocked everyone because it hinted that it was a unanimous decision, but the fact that it happened that quickly, that kind of also gave everyone hope as we as we entered the viewing room before the verdict. This was the moment. Ed Buck was charged with nine federal counts. In the room set aside for visitors, the room quieted as people strained to hear the judge over the closed circuit television. I remember thinking how many queer people there were assembled in this very non-gay setting. This was a first for me. We were all in our version of courtroom drag, trying to serve respectability realness. And I remember seeing multiple people make the sign of the cross when the moment came. Guilty. 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 Guilty on all nine counts. Buck gave no indication that he even heard the verdict. I don't remember hearing cheers or shouts. It was as if the entire courtroom exhaled. Guilty on the two counts with mandatory minimums, Ed Buck would have to serve jail time for his role in the deaths of Jamel Moore and Timothy Dean. Jamel Moore's mother, Letitia Nixon, 
would get a guilty verdict exactly four years after Jamel's tragic death. A big weight has been lifted off of, of me. I knew that we were going to get justice. This is Shattering the System. I'm Sonari Glinton. We hear from the family of Jamel Moore and Timothy Dean, and the government learns that Ed Buck wasn't alone in exploiting the gay community. He exclusively targeted gay men who he met on the dating app Grinder, And when he met them, he used gay dating culture in a way that allowed him to really violently exploit these men. The aftermath and the lessons learned from Ed Buck, that's after this quick break. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, 
start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Shattering the System. I'm Sonarian Clinton. Jurors found Ed Buck guilty on all nine charges. Remember, the important ones were the two with mandatory minimums. When the judge read the verdict, there was silence. And as the courthouse emptied, it seemed as if an emotional valve had opened. Tears flowed from the spectators with family, victims, and lawyers embracing as they walked out of the courthouse into the blazing California sun. The viewers of the trial were a genuinely diverse group of people. That was in stark contrast to the utter lack of diversity in the L.A. press that gathered to cover the trial. The divide between the family and friends of the victims and the largely white, straight press corps was clear as the families stepped up to the microphones on the steps of the federal courthouse. My name is Letitia Nixon, Jamel Morris' mom. Um, I'm so happy and pleased that we put this part behind us. We want to send a message to all the other Ed Bucks. Y'all better stop what y'all doing, because we going to get y'all. If Jamel Moore's mother was happy with a guilty verdict, that would mean that the work to get justice was done. She would continue with a civil suit that would seek to get Ed Buck to be financially responsible for the damage he'd done. Also, I want to put a plea out to all of the politicians, all of Ed Buck's friends, to return that dirty money. Return it back to us so that we can help these other victims and we can go forward in our civil suit. All of Ed Buck's friends, these dirty politicians, y'all know who y'all are. That's all I have to say. It took a lot of pressure to get law enforcement to, to act in these cases. Yes. Are you hopeful now that that will change the next time something like this happens? Oh, most definitely. This really increased my faith. Yes. The verdict in 2021 is what many of the friends and family would call a victory in the West. One of the disappointments, though, would come with the sentencing in 2022. The judge didn't give Buck a life sentence. She stopped at what she called an effective life sentence. Buck was sentenced to 360 months, that's 30 years in federal prison, for providing fatal doses of methamphetamine to two men who died at his apartment after he injected them with the drug. Buck was 67 at the time of sentencing. If he gets out, he'll be 97. Um, you know what? It's fine. He's 67, he'll be 97. I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah. This has been almost five years since 2017 when we couldn't get Jackie Lacey to uh, file any charges and um, no one wanted to touch this. This has been a long time coming, so um, we're very happy and I'm just, I'm ready to just put this behind me and go, you know, ahead with uh, healing. I I haven't been able to heal. Me nor my other kids, my my mother, rest of my family. I'm just, I need to focus on healing. I I came and did what I had to do. Letitia Nixon was able to give an impact statement. And she said Jamel was the love of her life. 
and how his death had upended her own life. The detail that stands out was she explained how she'd been there for patients as they were dying, and Ed Buck had let her son die naked and alone without anyone to comfort him. Meanwhile, Ed Buck would ask the court to consider his activism in West Hollywood, including his fight for animal rights. We're going to listen to the press conference after the sentencing. So let's start with Letitia Nixon. A big weight has been lifted off of me. I knew that we were going to get justice. I knew that he was going to get some time because he's guilty. He had, you know, they got his own Fatura uh, evidence that he kept himself. So he basically convicted himself. So happy. Are you still frustrated that he took it longer? Yeah. Um, I'm a little frustrated, but I'm happy with the results. I'm Joanne Campbell. I'm not completely satisfied with the 30 years. I was hoping for more time for this man that killed my brother, but I can live um, with the 30 years knowing that it's gonna be a very long time before he gets out. So I can live with that, but um, I'm just so proud of the prosecutors that prosecuted this case and the great job that they did to bring this justice to this man. So um, no amount of time can bring my brother back, but um, I feel some kind of solace and some kind of relief for my family that he will be in prison for a very long time. What did you think about what he said about um, That's not love when you kill someone, and um, I don't believe he was a friend to my brother and he loved my brother so that was just something he was saying hopefully to get some sympathy from the judge but i don't believe and buy any of it if law enforcement had acted um, in the beginning when jamel moore was killed it wouldn't have been a timothy dean's death because this man would have been put away so i i do believe that they should have acted a lot quickly and we wouldn't be here we thank you everyone hi I'm Joyce Jackson, Timothy Dean's sister. Um, today is a good day. It's not the best day, but it is good. And I can go home today feeling a whole lot better and try to get my life back together. And when I say that, I have not been able to visit my brother's grave site. So I can go home now and go to his grave site and have a conversation with him. There is victory in the West. I did want to see more time for him. However, I'm good with these 30 years. He's in Tampa, Florida, um, at a beautiful gravesite. So I'm glad that I'll be able to leave here and finally go to his gravesite. Um, I just wish that this day would have never occurred. However, we're here. We've got to deal with it. And I'm ready to start healing because I have not been able to heal. And that's been one of the most hardest things for me. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Dane, last name Brown. Um, I'm the final victim of Ed Bucks. Um, uh, my response to the sentencing, it's like to say one and a half times what he's owed. And I don't feel that it's fair for all the victims because he only got a little bit of what he deserved. Um, it's something better than nothing but, you know, I wish the courts would have done more. Um, it should have been a lesson. It should have been swift. It should have been hard. It should have been more, you know, regardless of his age, 
he's done a lot of wrong things to a lot of people. He's destroyed families and he's destroyed lives. So he needed to be, it needed to be a lesson to other people out there who are trying to do the same things or not knowing that they're doing the same things. They needed to, they needed to see that the government doesn't play around when it comes to lives. And we got some, but not all. Um, I'm grateful that he won't get out for a very long time, but I wish it was more done. And that's pretty much all I have to say. It should have been life. It should have been life. Tell us about your experience. Yes, have you survived it going through this trial? I try my best not to think about it. Um, I try to take each day as it comes. Um, and knowing that, you know, each day gets better and better. But coming back to the trial, it takes me back to a, uh, a different time in my life. And I'm glad that I'm past that point. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Tracy Wilkinson. I'm the United States Attorney for the Central District of California. Tracy Wilkerson would succeed Nick Hanna as U.S. Attorney briefly. With me are the AUSAs that prosecuted this case. Ed Buck committed horrible, unimaginable crimes. The United States Attorney's Office took it very seriously. The jury took it seriously. And today the judge took it seriously and sentenced him to 30 years in prison. It was not the life term that we had advocated so persuasively for but it is still a significant sentence that recognizes his serious, serious crimes. And I know that no sentence, frankly, even a life sentence, would not have been enough to bring back your family members, to undo the harm that's been done to you. But I hope that you will now be able to begin the healing process because you know that this man is going to be in prison for a very long time. Thank you. I'm immensely grateful for the continuing support of the victims and families who have entrusted us with the memory and justice uh, for their loved ones. It has been immeasurable in terms of not only building the case, but giving us the passion to keep pursuing it, even when we sought, when we faced adversity in this case. And I also just wanna say that I think in my opinion, one of the things that was the most persuasive today were the statements of the victims who came in um, and bravely spoke again. They, some of them testified at trial, some of them weren't able to and were able to give their, made their make their voices heard today. Um, but I think of all of the things that happened today, that was one of the most powerful and one of the most persuasive things. And, you know, I, I am grateful to the U.S. Attorney's Office and particularly grateful to Chelsea, who is a wonderful partner to work with on this case. And I'm just grateful that I was able to have any sort of an impact on the lives of these people who I've met and who were hurt so badly by Ed Buck and that we were able to receive some sort of justice today. So thank you. The prosecutor, Lindsay Bailey, points out what a chore it was for victims to testify. Ed Buck picked victims who wouldn't be believed. And we heard from those who testified that the police weren't kind. They would show up early in the morning to do interviews, and many of those who testified were still dealing with the horror of dredging up some of the worst moments of their lives. It took a tremendous amount of, of courage to do what they did. Um, they did not want 15 minutes of fame, as, as the defense counsel accused them of. Uh, they were viciously attacked on cross-examination, and they held up 
remarkably, and I am so proud of how valiantly they testified and um, kept their heads held high. It would be a victory to get nine guilties. Here's Corey McLean, one of Jamel Moore's friends. Over the years, he was there for most of the moments along the road to get Ed Buck convicted. So this is Jamel's ashes, and I take him with me. I've spread him in Hawaii, in Miami, and in the Hollywood Hills. And on days like this, I like to wake him up to channel his energy. And to answer your question about the sentencing, he feels like it's a slap in the face. Like, 30 years is stupid like it is. However, we fought long and hard, and it's been so draining, so we have to just accept this and move on. So hopefully I, we all find healing and peace, and I pray that everyone that's affected by this gets some type of counseling. If it's not by the government or someone that they can provide it to these victims that had to relive these situations over. But from this moment on, I don't want to think of Jamel Moore and Ed Buck in the same sentence. I want to separate the two and just find healing and peace from this moving forward. And thank you all for, for being a part of this journey. Yeah, I travel the world, so everywhere I go, I take him with me just so we can keep creating memories because I believe in energy. His energy's still here with us. The feds got their man. Ed Buck is likely to spend most of his life in the federal prison system. When he gets out of jail, if he does, he will be 97 years old. Nine guilties, how did that feel? Oh, it's indescribable. Chelsea Norell was one of the lawyers who tried Ed Buck. It was the ultimate relief to be able to secure that for the people that had stood by this case from the beginning, for the victims, for the family of their loved ones who perished. It was, it was surreal. I, I had in my mind envisioned hearing those words and it was out of body to actually hear them come back on the four-year anniversary of Jamel Moore's death and have that be a new memory for his mom who said that that was the worst day of her life and now it's also the anniversary of the day she got justice for her son. And that's just a gift that I will always be so grateful for that the, that the jury returned on that day. Ed Buck's landlord filed to evict him two months after he was arrested. It would only be a couple of months before the verdict in this case before Ed Buck's things were finally removed from 1234 North Laurel Avenue. Both families would pursue civil cases against Buck, but the case of the U.S. versus Ed Buck would end with Ed Buck being found guilty. Here's Lindsay Bailey, the prosecutor. You know, sentencing is not necessarily just about the individual. It's about the message that it sends to the community as a whole. And so we were arguing specifically for a, quote, life sentence because we wanted to send the message to the community that, like, it's not okay for you to prey on vulnerable people. It's not okay for you to assert power over people who have less power than you and really send that home to anybody else who who may be in that sort of a position. Um, but look, at the end of the day, it, it was a 30-year sentence, which for someone like Buck, who is, you know, a, a lifelong meth user in his 60s, is essentially going to be a life sentence. He's, you know, not just going to be walking around free after 30 years if he's even still alive then. So I think we were disappointed in the sense of the message that a life sentence would have sent both to the community as a whole and to the families of the victims and the victims themselves, that this is a case that was going to be taken seriously. But I think as a practical matter, you know, and, and I think 
my speculation is that this is what the judge was kind of going for, is that this is effectively a life sentence for him, even if it is not, quote, a life sentence. The defense would file a motion during the trial to ask the court to acquit Ed Buck before the jury could deliberate because all the evidence hinged on, quote, the testimony of a parade of financially motivated houseless individuals and drug addicts and should not have been believed. The judge denied the motion. And each of those guilty verdicts showed a jury did believe those black men. This is Shattering the System. More after this quick break. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. 
tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Shattering the System. I'm Sonarian Glenton. Ed Buck's crimes weren't in isolation. Jamel Moore died months before the Me Too movement began in earnest. Bill Cosby would go on trial for allegedly drugging women in his home, and that was between the deaths of Jamel and Timothy. The porn actor, Ron Jeremy, was accused of drugging women, not very far from Ed Buck's apartment. Now, while Buck was awaiting trial, I got a call from a friend. He's a performer, let's call him Ricky. Ricky had been robbed at knife point by a date on a hookup app. The man stole thousands of dollars worth of equipment and even used my friend's cell phone to steal money out of his bank account. It turns out that incident wasn't a one-off. A man named Derek Patterson had been specifically robbing gay men on a dating app called Grinder. This time, the government's response would be very different than the way officials reacted to the deaths of Timothy Dean and Jamel Moore. My name's Jeremiah Levine, and I'm an assistant United States attorney. That's a federal prosecutor here in Los Angeles, which is the largest district of federal prosecution in the United States. Let's pick up with my interview with Levine as I was telling him the story of my friend who was robbed and assaulted. Help me understand what Patterson is accused of doing. Sure. Patterson is accused of a string of about 21 robberies over the course of about three years. And during that string of robberies, he exclusively targeted gay men who he met on the dating app Grinder. And when he met them, he used a gay dating culture in a way that allowed him to really violently exploit these men for robbery. Help me understand that. So I'll unpack that for people who may not understand that, like, you know, you'd go on Grinder and, like, help me understand the, like, what happened if he showed up at your house, the allegation. Sure. So his MO, what he did in most of the robberies, is that he would use a profile on the dating app Grinder that looked alluring. He is a tall and handsome man, and he would use a pretty lurid handle, something like uh, 10 inches or 11 inches, which was um, intended to be a reference to the size of his penis, meant to be attractive. And he would use that profile to lure his intended victims into meeting with him. And on Grinder, it is fairly common that you will match with somebody chat pretty briefly, sometimes, um, you know, a few minutes, and then be 
alone in private with that person with whom you've just matched in a matter of hours. And and that's um, something that Patterson did typically with some of his victims. He would match with them on Grinder, put in very little time and effort, and then very quickly be alone with them. And um, that's one of the aspects of, of gay dating culture that uh, that he used to exploit. I, I think it's more common to be um, very rapidly alone with someone in grinder culture than in other dating cultures. So once Patterson was in the residence, he would typically say, um, hey, can I use your phone to look at porn so we can get ready to have sex? That's another thing that I think would be, would maybe send up more of an alarm bell um, in another dating culture, but in in grinder dating culture, that didn't seem to be particularly off putting to anybody. So he would right away get inside and sit and, and get the person's phone. Um, once he had the person's phone, he, ostensibly to look at porn to get ready for the sexual encounter, he would start uh, transferring the victim's money to himself. Sometimes he would go straight from hey, can I have my phone back, please, to beating the person or pepper spraying the person. Um, Other times he would uh, say that he had a gun and that he was going to murder the person. Um, Sometimes he would go get a kitchen knife and chase the victim around, slashing at them, sometimes actually stabbing them with the knife. And eventually, shortly thereafter, he would make off with the phone and then after he had left the presence of the victim, continued to use the phone to transfer himself money from their Zelle, from their Venmo, from their Cash App, and also to use the purchasing power on their phone, whether through Apple Pay or some other mobile payment device, to purchase goods and services. So, I mean, some of these allegations are, this has so many threads in so many gay stories, right? You could think of it as six degrees, you know, it's six degrees of separation. It's connected to, you know, it's connected to that buck. There was like so many, you know, using, but the extraordinariness of some of the things, like the one that stands out to me is the opening up a line of credit. So um, the next kind of level of complexity up is he would make purchases. He would, some of these, some of his victims had Apple Pay. So he would go um, and purchase electronics. For example, I think he purchased um, AirPods. Um, he then he the ne- kind of the next level of complexity up is he would sometimes purchase services. He would purchase on several occasions nights at hotel rooms in Los Angeles. Um, and then he would also, because he had all the details of his victims and access to their accounts, he would even open up lines of credit. So I believe. With Goldman, I believe that Apple has a partnership with Goldman Sachs. Um, one of uh, Patterson's victims already had an Apple iTunes account, and Patterson parlayed that Apple account into a new line of credit with Goldman. So, pretty sophisticated means. Part of what makes this frightening is the number of like for grinder to work or these things to work the number of times that a gay man invites another man that he does not know after, you know, a group of conversations that are like, sup, looking, 
I mean, like one. I mean, emojis yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And that, and that per. I mean, the, I mean, the number of times I've thought, did you just give me <laughs> the code to your apartment building? Which yeah. I will. Re- I just will remember because this is a historic building, and but like literally, that is. That's happened. I mean, it's so unbelievably frightening. It's possible that this happens a lot more than we realize and that victims don't feel like they can uh, they can risk exposing themselves um, by talking to law enforcement. Or maybe they don't feel ashamed, but they don't feel like they're likely to get their due from law enforcement. Patterson could have evaded detection for much longer. And in fact, he did evade detection for years. You know, there, it's it's a fairly you can have a fake grinder profile, and these days you can wear a mask as you're walking into a building without arousing a whole lot of suspicion, um, and remain anonymous relative to the security cameras in there, and and per- perpetrate a crime um, pretty anonymously. So, I think this may happen more than we realize. You know, the resolution of the case is pretty swift, relatively speaking, and strong. So help me understand 111 months in federal prison for targeting and robbing gay men in Los Angeles, $84,000 in restitution. But the key seems to be the hate crime part. I mean, how often, I remember many years ago, the thought of a gay man being charged with a hate crime was an anomaly. How far have we come in the 15 years? Tell me the facts of what the judge did and what does this mean? The law that applies here with regard to hate crime enhancement is that if a criminal targets a victim because of the victim's perceived sexual orientation, and if the government can prove that beyond a reasonable doubt, then the defendant is subject to a higher sentence. There's a couple key things in there. One is the targeting has to be because of the perceived sexual orientation. That's all. If anybody targets a gay person because they are gay, they're subject to a hate crime enhancement. So what's really important there is that I didn't say hate. Patterson need not hate his victims. A person can be a member of the group that they are targeting and still be subject to the hate crime enhancement. So in that way, hate is a little bit that hate crime enhancement is a little bit of a misnomer. Anytime a criminal targets um, gay people or members of certain other groups because of their perceived membership in those groups, they can be subject to the hate crime enhancement. Can you help draw the parallels and the distinctions between Ed Buck and, say, Derek Patterson? I can tell you that in both instances, the defendants preyed on vulnerable victims. Criminals prey on vulnerable victims. Sometimes those people are economically disadvantaged. Sometimes they are immigrants. And sometimes they are uh, members of a sexual preference minority. That is that the, the vulnerability of the victims is what I think draws those cases together. I think it's really important not to accidentally do any blame shifting or even sound like we're doing any blame shifting. It is a 
great thing that we have reached a place where gay people can be proud and can be meeting easily and online and not in secret. That is fantastic. That is not the problem. The problem is that there are bad people out there exploiting it. And there is a case in Texas where uh, criminals used Grinder to kidnap victims. And some of the kidnappers uh, self-identified as bisexual. So Patterson is not the only person who's, uh, who's using this hack. In our next episode with Ed Buck in prison, we wanted to gauge the impact his crimes had on the Black queer community in Los Angeles and why Black victims are so often ignored. That's next on Shattering the System. Thank you for listening. Shattering the System is a production of Macro Studios and iHeart Podcasts. I'm your host, Sonari Glinton. Follow me at S-O-N-A-R-I-1 on Instagram. Our series executive producers are Charles King, Asia Corpus Wynn, Roy Orecchio, Jonathan Unger, Lindsay Hoffman, and Sonari Glinton. That's me. Our show is co-written and produced by Ralph Cooper III. Erica Rodriguez is our associate producer. Dana Conway is our archival producer. Chris Mann is our audio engineer. Sound design and music provided by Chris Mann with Podshaper. Special thanks to Karen Grigsby-Bates, Portia Migas-Robertson, and Lisa Pollack. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts, the medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. 
Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.